Well, thank you, Justin and worship team, for leading us in those songs of worship. Good evening to all of you. Welcome to our Good Friday service. It's a joy to have you here. We're so grateful to see you. Uh, this evening, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Luke, chapter 23. The book of Luke, chapter 23. And we're going to be looking at the record of Jesus' crucifixion. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we understand what today is. We understand that today we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to your word, as we study the crucifixion together, may you help us see what you want us to see. May you help us worship you give you more glory because we understand better what it costs you to give us our salvation, to purchase our salvation through Christ. We are so grateful for you and for Christ and for his humility, his mercy. We pray, Lord, that as we, as we look upon your word, May you get all the glory and all the honor. Sing your sons, then we pray. Amen. Recorded history has left us with many stories of human triumph, but it, it has also left us with many stories that demonstrate the depravity, the depth of evil in all of humanity as well. On June 28, 1914, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria led to international turmoil, culminating in the First World War. And we could say that that day was one of the darkest days in human history. That First World War, which arose due to all the international tensions that resulted from Archduke Ferdinand's assassination, was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. But as we know, that's not true. The end of World War I did not end all war. Rather, it laid the foundations. It laid the seed for World War II and all the atrocities that occurred within it. In more recent history, one of the darker days experienced for Americans was September 11, 2001, the deadliest terror attack on United States soil. Many of us remember where we were that morning when we first heard the news of the, ter of the terrorist attacks upon our nation. My family was just getting ready to go to school. We were getting ready to leave when we heard the news of those airplanes crashing into the World Trade Center. And the range of emotions went from shock to disbelief to anger. How could anyone crash airplanes into buildings? Why would they even think about doing that? And to this day... 9-11, we, we live in a post-9-11 world, is considered one of our darkest days in our history. And the ramifications of that dark day can be seen not only in our country, but in countries around the world. 
as all forms of travel are monitored closely, as all intelligence agencies are all constantly on the lookout for new threats. But as tragic as 9-11 was for the American people, there is a, still a day that is darker, a day that has far-reaching international impact or implications than 9-11. And we remember that day today. That's Good Friday. Good Friday is the darkest day in all of human history because it is on this day. It is on this day that Jesus Christ, the righteous, the innocent Son of God, was crucified. Though the day Christ was crucified is certainly the darkest day in human history since sinful man rejected the Son of God and nailed him on the cross, all hope is not lost. In fact, hope abounds and points all who believe upon Christ to the promise of heaven. This evening, we're going to examine two characteristics of Christ that provides hope and points forward even in the darkness of crucifixion. Two characteristics of Christ that provides hope and points forward even in the darkness of the crucifixion. The first characteristic of Christ that we will examine this evening is Jesus' mercy. Jesus' mercy. We, f- we start in verse 33. 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Jesus and the two criminals who are going to be crucified with him are led to a place called the Skull, which is also known by its other names, Golgotha or Calvary. The difference in terms of the name is really depending on which language you're using to refer to the place. And it is here where Jesus and the two criminals are crucified. Jesus in the middle and the two criminals on his left and his right. But you notice here in verse 33 how briefly Luke mentions Jesus' crucifixion. He just merely notes that Jesus was crucified. And he does that. He treats it so briefly because he knows that his readers know what crucifixion entails. And by now, the majority of you, you've heard enough Good Friday messages, enough gospel sermons to know what that entails as well. You know that before Jesus was crucified, that he was beat, that he was whipped with a whip made of leather, and in those leather tongs was embedded bone and metal, so that with every stroke upon our Savior's back, his back was bloodied as it was torn to shreds. You know that the Roman soldiers drove long nails five to seven inches long, through his wrists, and that they drove another nail through his ankles, through his feet. You know these things. But have you ever stopped to think about why Jesus was killed in this way? Why the crowd specifically called for his crucifixion? Part of the reason 
why the religious leaders in the crowds called for crucifixion was because crucifixion was the preferred method of execution in the Roman Empire. But the religious leaders also knew what they were doing as well. They called for crucifixion because they hated Jesus. They viewed him as a threat to their power and to their authority. They thought of him as a blasphemer, as someone who claimed to be God but was not. And so they needed to do something about him. And because he was telling people that he was the son of God, they knew that they needed to communicate a message so clear and so strong that everyone who was raised in the Jewish context would understand that Jesus was to be considered cursed. They put him on that tree because they knew that Deuteronomy 21, 23 says that any man who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so they cried, crucify him, crucify him, because they wanted for the crowd to see that Jesus was a man under curse. And in a sense, that's true. It's because he bore the wrath of God for all of our sins. Yet, despite this, look at Jesus' response. When the Roman soldiers who were responsible for carrying out the crucifixion nailed him to the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of the most trying of circumstances, the Son of God recognizes that these soldiers and the crowds, the majority of them anyway, they did not understand what they were doing. And so he asked that God might have mercy upon them for their error in thinking that Jesus was not the Son of God. And he prays on behalf of the ones who put him on that cross. Jesus had every right to use his power, to use his authority to pull himself off that cross. He had every right to use his power to call legions of angels down from heaven to kill every single one of those people right there on the spot for what they did to him. And yet, he did not. He restrained the use of his power. His power was under control, and that is the very definition of mercy. The mercy that Jesus extends to, this, to these people highlights a very important point. Just because someone rejects the Son of God initially does not mean that God cannot save them ever. Right? Because it is here, even though they rejected him and put him on that cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The forgiveness of, of sin is still possible because God's mercy continues to hold out the gift of forgiveness of sins to people everywhere, withholding for a time what we have earned for ourselves with our sin. As a continued part of the mockery of Jesus, in addition to the practicality of taking his clothes, which were very valuable, the soldiers, they cast lot for Jesus' clothes. And while that's true, this is also a fulfillment of Scripture. This speaks to what David foretells in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, When David prophesies what the righteous sufferer will endure at the hands of those who are against him. 
Those who inflicted suffering upon the righteous suffer, they cast lot for his clothes, taking advantage of his suffering for their own gain. And so what we see here in Jesus' crucifixion is the exact same thing that David is talking about in Psalm 22. These soldiers are taking advantage of Christ's crucifixion. They're casting lots in order to keep his clothes. And in verse 35, you see more similarities to Psalm 22. As the religious leaders, they mock Jesus. They sneer at him. And they tell him to save himself if he is God. Just like in Psalm 22, the mockers of the righteous sufferer tell the righteous one to entrust himself to God because God has favor upon him. And in their mocking, notice, as we shift over to the religious leaders, that they did not and could not deny that Jesus actually did good works in healing people or saving people. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They did not deny that he did good works or that he saved people. However, because they saw him as a threat to their power, to their influence, to their very way of life. And because he did not fit their expectation of Messiah, they rejected him and his claims. They thought that if Jesus truly were God like he said he was, he should prove it by saving himself. The fact that Jesus was on the cross at all fueled their mocking attitudes of him because they believed that that exposed Jesus as an imposter. The soldiers, they also joined in on the mocking of Jesus, pretending to give honor to the king of the Jews. And that was based off of a sign that Pilate made that said, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And Pilate wrote that because he knew that the religious leaders hated Jesus, that they were jealous of Jesus, and that they rejected him as king. But because Pilate hated the religious leaders, he made that sign that said, Behold, behold the king of the Jews. And so the Roman soldiers, they join in here, and they mock him. They mock him. And they say, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Matthew 27, 27 to 31 tells us that these Roman soldiers mocked Jesus before his crucifixion by putting a crown of thorns on his head. They placed a reed in his right hand as if it were a scepter, and they gave him a scarlet robe, the color of royalty, all while kneeling before him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And that mockery continues here at the cross. It continues here as they offer him sour wine like they would offer a king a drink on bended knee with hands stretched out, saying, here, Jesus, take a drink. But the indignity doesn't stop there. One of the criminals who is being crucified with Jesus also yells at abuse at him and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, Matthew tells us that both of the criminals who were being crucified with Jesus were insulting Jesus together. But Luke shows us here in verse 40 that the other criminal had a change of heart. Now, why he had a change of heart outside of God changing his heart so that he could see that Jesus was indeed God's righteous chosen one is unknown. But he rebukes his fellow criminal 
saying, and this is verse 40 to 41, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The criminal recognizes that he deserves to die because of his deeds. That God was right to give the judgment of death to him. But at the same time, he also recognizes that Jesus deserves none of it. That Jesus truly was the Messiah, which is why he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You see, this criminal, he recognized while hanging on that cross with Jesus, that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that he has the right to receive God's kingdom and that he will take it and he will reign. And because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, he asked Jesus to remember him when he receives his kingdom. Now, after all of that verbal abuse that Jesus endured at the hands of the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, the crowds, and the criminals, Jesus finally responds to what someone says to him on that cross. And it is an answer to this criminal. Because of this criminal's faith, because he knows that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus responds and tells him that today, this criminal, though he was guilty enough to deserve capital punishment, will be with him in paradise, the place where the righteous will be with the Lord. Now, we don't know what this criminal did in order to deserve capital punishment, but knowing that crucifixion was typically reserved for the worst criminals tells us that this man committed a crime worthy of death. And yet, we have hope here, too. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. More likely than not, none of you have committed a crime worthy of capital punishment. And if forgiveness of sin was possible for this man on the cross as he is dying, it is also possible for you. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. He's willing to forgive you of everything. Now, some of you may be here tonight, and you might be hearing this for the first time, and you might be thinking, sure, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. I, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, and I certainly never murdered anyone. I'm a good person. And you certainly may be a good person. I don't doubt that whatsoever. You may even live a better life than some of the Christians that you know, some of the Christians in this room. But did you know that you have pending criminal charges against you? Every single little thing that you have ever done wrong in your life is sin. It is rebellion against what is right. It is rebellion against God. Every mile per hour over the speed limit, guilty. Every white lie, half lie, partial truth you've ever told, guilty. Every feeling of hatred that you've ever had towards anyone, guilty. Every single time you've ever acted like the God of your own life, guilty. 
We are all guilty. Why do I bring this up? I'm not trying to guilt trip you into salvation. Can't do that. But James 2.10 tells us that even if we were able to live a life that managed to obey all of God's laws except for one, then we would be guilty of it all. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We failed to reach God's perfect standard, to keep God's perfect standard. We all sin, and Romans 6.23 tells us that the consequences of those sins, the wages that we earn, is death. Even though we are all in trouble with God due to our sin against him, there is hope, though. It's not lost. Romans 5.6-11 says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, God, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Even though we fall short of God's perfect standard, there is hope for the forgiveness of sins because God is merciful. He is the one who revealed to us that we have a sin problem. You wouldn't know that outside of him. He is the one who made a way through his son, Jesus, to deal with that sin problem for us once and for all. We rightly deserve God's wrath for our sins. But because of his mercy, because of the mercy that results from Jesus' merciful restraint and willingness to die as our substitute, though he did nothing wrong, we all can be saved from God's wrath by God himself. And this is the hope. This is the only way towards heaven. It is found only in Christ Jesus. And this mercy from God is extended to you today. However, while God is merciful today, there will be a day when the time for mercy is up and justice will be required. Don't wait until it's too late to receive God's mercy. Now, for those of you who are here tonight and you've repented of your sins, you've believed in Christ, remember that it is his mercy that allowed for your salvation to happen. It is all because of God's gracious and merciful choice that we are able to be saved from our sins. Therefore, don't be too proud. Be like your Savior. And extend that mercy to others, especially believers who are considerably younger in the faith. Perhaps they're taken captive by some wrong doctrine. Don't just cast them out, but have mercy upon them. Show them the truth and pray for them rather than relegating them outside the camp. Also, don't grow complacent with the beauty of the gospel. You know, I admit that it's very easy to to get complacent with the gospel. It's very difficult even not to sigh or to grow impatient when someone tells me the same gospel truths that I've heard before, that I know before. 
But look at what we can miss if we just blaze through our scripture reading. We miss the fact that even the minute details of our Lord's crucifixion fulfills prophecy. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are in, in, in view particularly here. The lamb was silent before his shears. He did not revile those who reviled him, but prayed for them. And he extended mercy. When he spoke while hanging on the cross here in Luke, he did so to tell the criminal who believed in him that his faith had saved him. What great restraint our Savior had. What great mercy he puts on display. Even though he has done nothing wrong, yet he was impaled to that tree and insulted mercilessly. Jesus was merciful to those who persecuted him and put him on the cross. And he extends that mercy to us today. And though it is small, this characteristic of mercy tells us much about who Christ was and even his commitment to dying on the cross. And that leads us to our second characteristic of Christ that provides hope and points us forward, even in the darkness of the crucifixion, and that is Jesus' humility. Jesus' humility. Luke tells us here in verse 44 that it was the sixth hour, or 12 noon, around the time that Jesus was hanging on the cross. And it was from 12 noon till 3 p.m. that darkness fell over the whole land because the sun was obscured. Now, some have tried to explain this phenomenon by saying that there must have been an eclipse at that time, or perhaps a Mediterranean windstorm that was capable of darkening the sun was sweeping through. Now, it certainly could not have been an eclipse, for an eclipse is impossible during Passover due to the full moon's position, nor would it account for the three hours of darkness since solar eclipses only last for about seven minutes, a little over seven minutes. Nor could it be that Mediterranean windstorm because it would have been much too dangerous for anyone to be in. So what we see here with the sun darkened, with the land darkened from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. is God intervening in nature and using that darkness to symbolize his presence and his judgment upon Jesus. That pitch blackness in the sky in the middle of the day represented all of God's wrath for all of the sins of mankind poured out upon the Son of God as he hung there on that cross so that so that the debt of sin could be paid once for all and it might seem like a minor detail but Luke also notes in verse 45 that the veil of the temple was torn in two That was a symbol also of the acceptability of Christ's death on the cross to pay the debt of sins for all who would believe in him. That veil in the temple was a veil that prevented most people from entering into the holiest part of the temple where the high priest would enter once a year on the day of atonement in order to make sacrifices for the people. Jesus was crucified during Passover week 
which was not the same as the Day of Atonement, so that the priests would not have been inside that inner part of the temple. However, they were offering sacrifices at that time in order to remember when God passed over the Israelite people for judgment while they were in Egypt. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that that veil that hung in the temple tore from top to bottom. It tore from top to bottom, which means that no one else but God could have done this. And essentially, this says, because my son is the ultimate Passover sacrifice and has paid for the sins of all who believe, there is no need for a divider between me and you because I will be with you. His death has paid it all. Therefore, you have access to me. Christ's death on the cross accomplished for all who believe in him a legal declaration of righteousness. And as a result, those who believe in Jesus Christ are able to be considered one with God. We can enjoy the blessings of worship and assurance that God will never allow for us to be cast away from him, even if we sin, because our legal status of innocence means that God forgave all of our sins in Christ. Every single believer, though we may stumble and fall throughout this life, have nowhere to go but forward as we strive to become even more like Jesus. Though Jesus is equally God, just as much as God the Father is God, and just as much as God the Holy Spirit is God, we see his humility here as he became a substitute for the sins of mankind because he took the form of his creation in order to be the mediator between God and man. And it is through him that we have peace. But this peace is not just accomplished through his perfect life. It is also accomplished by his death and his resurrection. The one through whom all creation came into being was killed by his very own creation. Yet what does Jesus say here in verse 46? He cries out to God the Father. And though normally he would be on that cross for hours before he dies, he lays down his life. He gives it up. He commits his spirit into the Father's hands, and he dies. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The humility of Christ screams off that page as we see him voluntarily give himself up. As we see the fact that he did not cry out in anger and say, God, why did you let them kill me? Rather, he submits himself to the Father's will and he gives up his own life. He says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus was not coerced into giving up his life for the lives of all that God the Father wanted to save. He gave it up willingly. He died willingly. He went to the cross willingly. Because he loved God the Father. And he was willing to submit or defer to the will of his Father. Jesus was certainly distressed by facing the prospect of receiving the entire cup of wrath 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But his prayer at that time was still, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' humility, his willingness to submit and defer to God the Father demonstrates the extent of his love for God the Father and us. He was willing to lay down his rights in order to accomplish salvation for all of mankind. That ought to cause you to pause and reflect upon what an amazing Savior we have. He left heaven. He took on flesh all so that he could die for us, for you, for me. What an amazing thing that we see here. And in verse 47, the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion, he had a front row seat to all the mocking. He had a front row seat to the merciful restraint of Jesus. And he also had a front row seat to the supernatural display of God's wrath. He sees Jesus voluntarily giving up his life and recognizes that Jesus was certainly innocent. So, he's, in another account, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. But the centurion was not the only one who was affected by this. He wasn't the only one who saw that. But some of the people in the crowds noticed this as well. Verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. The crowds, not necessarily the same crowds that joyfully received him and shouted Hosanna when Jesus entered into the city during the triumphal entry, they gathered together in order to watch a show. They gathered together like sharks to blood in order to watch Jesus and these other criminals get executed. But when they saw all that had taken place, they realized that Jesus was innocent. And so they walked home beating their breasts. The beating of, of the breasts in ancient Near East culture was an expression of deep grief. These crowds, they recognized through all of these things that Jesus did not deserve to die. It's unclear whether they believed in him at that time as Messiah, but they certainly were grieved by what had happened. And that probably prepared their hearts for what, for what Peter would say in his sermon in Acts 2. Now Luke, he shifts our attention to those who follow Jesus following Jesus' death and notes that Jesus' acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Gal Galilee were standing at a distance during Jesus' crucifixion. And whether he was standing with them or not, Luke also identifies a man named Joseph. Joseph is described as one of the council members. But Joseph is distinguished from the rest of the council as he's described as a good and righteous man who did not consent to the plan and action of the rest of the council. You see, Joseph believed in Jesus. He was not jealous of Jesus, but he was waiting for the coming of God's kingdom. And so since Joseph did not agree with the council's decision to crucify Jesus, Joseph evidently believed, like the criminal on the cross did, that Jesus was the Messiah who was coming to claim the kingdom. And so with the permission of Pilate, Joseph takes Jesus off the cross, wraps him in a linen cloth, and puts him into a new tomb, a tomb that he had purchased for himself. And even in this action, Joseph demonstrates God's sovereignty as God uses it 
to fulfill what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 9, which says, his, that is God's suffering servant, grave, was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now think about this. Think about the humility of our Lord Jesus. The Lord and Savior of the whole world killed, taken off that cross, and buried. While his faithful followers prepared his body for burial, all Jesus could do was wait for when God will raise him from the dead. He could do nothing. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for all who would believe, humbling himself as far as he could, not just taking on human flesh, but dying for those he created. And this is the extent Jesus was willing to go, not only to obey his father, but also to save the people that he loved. And when we talk about being gospel-centered in our lives, what we are recognizing is what God has done through Christ, living in light of this wonderful truth as witnesses. So when we talk about being gospel-centered, yes, it includes not forgetting the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you, but you also have to remember that the gospel is not about you. It never has been about you. It's always been about God. And so when we're being gospel-centered people, we are a people that are committed to the glory of God, to the worship of God, to the proclamation and to the witness of the fact that God himself saved us. That's what it means to live gospel-centered. It's to live in light of the glory of God. And to be all about the glory of God. Jesus' ultimate expression of humility is one that can never and will never be topped. When we think about all that he went through in order to fulfill his father's plans and in order to bring his people back to himself, there is no other proper response but praise and worship. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross is indeed the darkest day in human history because it was on that day the Son of God laid down his life in order to save those who might believe. If we are ever tempted to think that our smallest sins are acceptable because they're not hurting anybody, consider the fact that it already has hurt someone. It was for that sin that Jesus died. Despite the darkness we saw this evening two characteristics of Jesus that provides hope and points us forward to heaven. Jesus' mercy and his humility. And as we slowed down to see what Jesus did, even though he was nailed to a cross and humiliated, we cannot help but move away from this passage, even more amazed by our great Savior and all that he has done. And though tonight we remember Jesus Christ crucified, we do not end our evening in despair because the story does not end here. Hope is on the horizon because Sunday is coming. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your mercy through Christ, we cannot help but worship you. We cannot help but want to sing Lord, as we recognize the fact that we deserve 
wrath because of our sins. We cannot help but be amazed by the fact that Christ took it all for us. We pray for those who are here this evening who have not yet believed upon Christ and turned away from their sins, that you would help them see how much you love them, how much you desire for them to be freed from their sins so that they might be able to be with you in heaven. We pray that you might save them tonight. And for those of us who are here this evening, help us just to grow in greater appreciation and love of Christ for all that he's done. Help us to be amazed by him and to want to do nothing more than to worship him. And even though our days may be dark in the future, we know that because our Savior died on the cross for us, that there is hope that heaven is on the horizon. And it's all because of his death and his resurrection. Lord, we pray that you would...